Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perot, executive producer of the Broken Brain series. Dr. Hyman and I started this podcast with the goal of continuing the incredible conversations that we started during our eight-part docuseries. Each week, we'll be inviting a guest who we think can help you improve your overall wellness, your brain health, and help you live your best life. Today, we have a very, very special guest, Dr. Hyman's personal meditation teacher, the famous Emily Fletcher. Emily Fletcher is the founder of Ziva Meditation, the creator of Ziva Online. Ziva's mission is to make meditation attractive, accessible, and easy, which is something we all need to adopt into modern life. Ziva teaches a unique combination of meditation, mindfulness, and manifestation, all to help you improve your overall performance. Featured in the New York Times, named top 100 women in wellness, congratulations, to watch and regarded as one of the leading experts in meditation for performance. Emily has been invited to speak at Harvard Business School, Bulletproof Biohacking Conference, Summit Series, Wanderlust, A-Fest. We invited her to the Feel Good Summit, but the timing didn't work out because she's having a baby, which is the best reason not to be there, but we would have loved to have you there. So far, she's taught over 7,000 people to become self-sufficient meditators with the Ziva technique and to take that technique with them into their everyday life. Emily, welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. What an intro. Thank you for that. I am happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to start off with something. You know, in the Broken Brain series, we talked a lot about meditation because brain health isn't just about what you put in your body. It isn't just um, uh, supplements and food. It's these other foods that we have, the, the anxiety that we take from day to day, the moments. A lot of the listeners here they're familiar with meditation. Some of people have dabbled into it, but I think that a lot of people find themselves in this interesting space. So I'm going to start with this big picture question. Why do so many people have a love or think they have a love-hate relationship with meditation in the beginning? Okay, great question. And the thing about meditation is that at this point, we've all heard about it. We understand that there's more and more neuroscience coming out, proving the benefits of it, that it can affect your immune system, your sleep, depression, anxiety, longevity, brain elasticity, um, sexual performance, physical performance. And so we know, at least intellectually, that it's good for us. But what most people do is that they assume that they should already know how to do it. Because it's simple, we assume that it just means sitting in a chair and clearing your mind. And this is really the number one misconception around meditation. People think that the point is to clear the mind. I think there's one dude out there telling everyone to clear their mind. And Drew, we got to find him and we have to teach him how to meditate. <laughs> because he's robbing people of, of a potentially a lifetime of bliss and fulfillment and better performance because then when people try, they judge themselves based on misinformation. And so what happens is they think, okay, so I should be able to clear my mind. So they sit down, they close their eyes and they say, okay, brain, stop thinking. And then they think, I sure would like a snack. Snacks are delicious. Oh wait, now I'm thinking about snacks. Now I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about snacks. I'm horrible at meditation. I quit. And that's usually the beginning and the end of most people's meditation careers, but it doesn't have to be that way because the point of meditation is not necessarily to be clear or focused or relaxed or happy during the meditation. 
The point of it is to get better at life. And this is a a subtle but important fact that just like we take a shower not to be clean while we're in the shower, we take it so we can be clean in the rest of our day. And sure, sometimes you might enjoy your shower. Sometimes it might be a delicious steam shower with eucalyptus, but I don't really care if you enjoy your shower or not. I care that you showered this morning so that you don't smell for the rest of the day. (laughs) And, And same thing in meditation. I actually don't care if my students enjoy the practice that itself. I care that they're doing it so that they can be more kind, more compassionate, more present, have better sleep, better sex, better performance in the rest of their day. And so this is somehow gotten lost in translation. And so it's one of my big missions is to really redefine meditation, one, as a performance enhancing tool, but two, let people off the hook to let them know that they're not meditation failures just because they can't quiet their crazy thoughts when they meditate. It's almost like we've confused the vehicle for the destination, you know? That's exactly right. We got in our car and we thought, you know, this is us arriving, but really it doesn't matter what the, you know, the vehicle is to get you somewhere and we've confused that with meditation. Now, I want to get into your background because it's super fascinating. You are a Broadway actress. Uh, You left the stage to travel around, ended up in India training meditation. Give us the the story of what brought you into this position that meditation came into your life and you decided to be a teacher. So you're right. I was on Broadway for 10 years and it's what I wanted to do since I was a little girl. And I really thought since I was eight years old, well, once I get on Broadway, then I will be happy. And I'm sure that people can relate to this. Probably not, I mean, maybe not with Broadway, but whatever the fill in the blank is, I'll be happy when I make a million dollars. I have a kid, I start a company, I get hired at this company, I get in this school. You know, we all have our assumed pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And then for those of us lucky enough to achieve it, what normally happens is that we realize that our happiness didn't lie on the other side of that person, place, or thing. And then it gets a little confusing. And it did for me anyway, because I was 22 when I got my first Broadway show. And three weeks later was the saddest I'd ever been. And it was very confusing to me why I was on Broadway living my dream, doing the thing I'd wanted to do my whole life. And I was miserable and and so I thought, you know, well, my happiness must be in my next Broadway show or my next boyfriend or my next zero in the bank account. And I did that for a decade. And then finally, my last Broadway show was a chorus line. And my job was to understudy three of the lead roles, which means you show up to the theater with no idea who you're going to go on for. Sometimes you start the show as one character and halfway through they switch you to a different character or you're just chilling in your dressing room and someone gets on a loudspeaker and says, Emily Fletcher, we need you on stage. And so you start panicking. And sometimes you're on stage before you even know which character you are. Now, some people are very good at this job. I am not one of them. It was causing me a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress, because even if I wasn't on, I was living in this constant state of fight or flight, scared that I might be thrown on at a moment's notice. And and so basically this started leading to anxiety, which led to insomnia. I couldn't sleep through the night for about 18 months. And then I started going gray at the tender age of 27. I started getting sick and injured. And like I said, here I am like living my dream, what I assumed would be martinis with Liza at Sardi's. And instead I'm rocking myself in fetal position underneath my dressing room table, listening to Eckhart Tolle on repeat. (laughs) And 
and, and like confused why I'd read all the self-help books. I had done all the therapy. You know, I felt like I had so many tools and yet I still was not able to perform at the level that I knew I was capable of. And so thankfully this amazing woman was sitting next to me in the dressing room. Her job was harder than mine was. And yet she seemed to be doing it with ease and effortlessness. Every song, every dance, every bite of food was a celebration. And I said, excuse me, what do you know that I don't know? And she said, I meditate. To which I promptly rolled my eyes and I was like, oh God, one of you. Because uh, this was a decade ago and there was not the neuroscience then that there is now. Sure. So I didn't really believe her. I just kept going gray, having insomnia and not performing at my full potential. And then finally it got so bad. I was so embarrassed about my performance that I thought, well, let me try something. So I went along, I took this meditation course and drew on the first day of my first class, I was meditating. To be honest, I had no idea what that meant, but I was in a different state of consciousness than I had ever been in before. And I liked it. And then that night, I slept through the night for the first time in 18 months. Wow. And I have every night since, and that was 10 years ago. And then, you know, not surprisingly, I stopped going gray. I'm 39 years old now. I have no gray hair. I was legitimately going gray a decade ago. I stopped getting sick. I didn't get sick for eight and a half years. I used to get sick four or five times a year. I had to get my tonsils out as an adult. I stopped getting injured. And most importantly, I started enjoying my job. So I thought, why does everybody not do this? So I left Broadway, I went to India, and then I started what became a three-year training process to teach. And then I opened up Ziva Meditation. We have uh, a studio in New York, and then we also created the world's first online meditation training, which I'm really proud of. And now, as you said, I have over 7,000 students all around the world uh, who I've taught this performance-enhancing meditation technique to, and it's just really been the most uh, rewarding, fulfilling thing I've ever done. What a journey. You, you talked about all those changes that you saw in your own life. Help our listeners understand, you know, in, in Broken Brain, in your interview, you talked a little about meditation and all the different changes that can happen for us. But what's actually happening on a, on a chemical level? What can, what's changing in our body when we step into that place of meditation? How does it actually help us reduce stress and, and these other uh, things that we're experiencing? Great question. So if we want to understand why the human body reacts to stress in the way that it does, we really have to cut back in time about 10,000 years. And let's say we're hunting and gathering in the woods and a saber-toothed tiger jumps out at us with the intent to kill. Well, when that happens, your body launches into a series of chemical reactions. First thing that will happen is that your digestion will flood with acid to shut down digestion because it takes so much energy to digest our food and we need all hands on deck to fight or flee that tiger. So that's thing one, digestion shuts down. That same acid will then seep onto your skin so that you don't taste very good if that tiger bites into you. And then your blood starts to thicken and coagulate so that if you do get bitten into, you don't bleed to death. Your bladder and bowels evacuate to make you light on your feet. Your immune system goes to the back burner because who cares if you're going to get cancer, if you're about to be killed by a tiger. Uh, your adrenaline levels increase, your cortisol levels increase. And I'm sure your audience knows by now that adrenaline and cortisol, they are acidic in nature. They are stress chemicals. And while they are very useful for you, if you are in fact being attacked by a tiger, they are not really useful in any other circumstance. Mm. They are not useful if your boss is having a bad day or if you got broken up with or if you had a long commute or if your mother-in-law is coming in town. Like none of, the, none of these modern day situations really call for this fight or flight stress reaction anymore. And yet our bodies have not quite adapted out of this fight or flight stress reaction. So what's happening is that it's actually become maladaptive. 
captive. Now it is disallowing us from performing at the top of our game because most of us are living our lives in this chronic low grade stress all the time. And so over time it builds up, that adrenaline builds up, that cortisol builds up and we get increasingly more acidic over time. And that acidity will change your pH, which can lead to inflammation. Over time that can lead to long-term chronic digestive issues, autoimmune issues, and really long-term it can actually lead to a breakdown and an atrophy of the brain. And so what meditation is doing is that it, it feels and sounds a little bit like magic. And sometimes I feel a little bit like a used car salesman when I'm like, meditation does this and this and this and this. And people are like, come on, Emily, like how can meditation do all these different things for you? And the better question that we should be asking is how does stress mess so many things up? And so if we agree that stress makes you stupid, sick, and slow, which it does, you know, there's a reason why you can't find your keys when they're in your hand, when you're rushing to get out the door. There's a reason why you can't find your glasses when they're on your head, when you're freaking out about where your glasses are. It's because your body and your brain are using so much of their precious energy to prepare for this predatory attack that they don't have like all of their faculties for the task at hand. And so if we agree that st stress makes you stupid, sick, and slow... And if we agree that meditation is a stress relieving tool, then it stands to reason that the less stress you have in your body, the more you're meditating, the better able you are to perform at the top of your mental and physical game. Mm, I love that. So it's like, you know, the validity of meditation, if we understand and agree, which every doctor agrees now, even very conventional doctors understand the impact that stress has. You could be eating the perfect diet, taking all the supplements, but emotions always trump everything else. So if we agree how bad stress is, which everybody does, now all of a sudden meditation has no objection against it. Exactly. And, and that's, you know, when people say, well, I don't have time to meditate. I'm too busy to meditate. The only thing they're really saying is I don't yet understand exactly what stress is costing me. And so this will be an interesting exercise for everyone who's listening to do is really take a minute. I mean, it could take five minutes. You can make a note in your phone, but I, I'd love for people to really take stock of what stress is costing them, both with their time and even financially. You know, the average American spends $11,800 per year dealing with stress and fatigue. So that's coffee, alcohol, cigarettes, therapy. Um, those are the main ones. Oh, oh sleeping pills, anti-anxiety and antidepressants. So the average American is spending $11,800 on those things annually. And so that's just financially. And then forget about what stress is costing you time-wise. So think about you've had a really long day. You've been in meetings all day, calls all day. You dealt with your kids this morning. Maybe you had a conversation with your parents this afternoon and you get to around 5 or 6 p.m., you know, where you feel like, oh, I just need a coffee. I need a nap. I need a chocolate. And you run into that fatigue. Uh, that's, that's a focus fatigue. And it can also be a form of chemical fatigue because you're, you're, brain and your body will start producing sleepy hormones and adenosine, which is the chemical that tells your brain that it is sleepy. And so then we try to mask that with coffee. And coffee is, is molecularly very similar to a chemical called adenosine, which is what I said, that, that chemical that tells your brain that it's tired. So we think that, oh, well, if I just have a coffee, it'll give me a hit of energy, but it's actually not giving you energy. It's masking your brain's ability to feel tired. And so what I recommend is that instead of having that afternoon coffee, what if you sneak away and do an afternoon meditation and then you're actually giving your body rest that is five times deeper than sleep? 
And I'm going to say that again for dramatic effect. When you practice Siva meditation, you are giving your body rest that is five times deeper than sleep. So instead of masking the brain's fatigue, you're actually giving it deep healing restorative rest so that you can be more awake and more productive on the other side. Mm. You talked about this myth that's there, or let's not even call it a myth. Let's just talk about the, the two most common things that I hear we've shared. The one that you just mentioned right now is that I don't have time for meditation. And then the other one is what we talked about in the beginning, which is I can't stop my, I can't clear my mind or some version of that. I was watching late night host, uh, with, uh, one of the, one of the late night talk show hosts. And there was a guest of his, a famous celebrity who was talking about the benefits that meditation have had in their life. And the host was saying, I, I don't know if I can't clear my mind. I just sit there and I just have too many thoughts. I've even heard people like Tony Robbins say like, you know, like, uh, oh, I can't do meditation. I don't want to sit there and like think of nothing. How did we get to this position? You know, I think it's useful to understand sometimes how we got into a mess to understand the context of it. How do we get into a mess where people think that the time component and the clearing our mind that we just so misunderstood what meditation really is. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, lots of them. And I think a lot of it goes back to the beautiful analogy that you said earlier is that we've confused the the destination with the journey. And, and so because the byproduct of meditation, the result of meditation is oftentimes a more clear mind, a more focused mind, a happier mind, we sometimes assume that I should feel clear or focused or happy or relaxed in the sitting itself. And, and that's not the case. Like, like for my ladies that are listening, you'll understand when you go to the salon and you get your hair done, you look atrocious. You have like you know, color on your eyebrows and foils in your hair and you're sitting under a giant plastic, you know, hey, helmet. You don't look nice when you're in the salon, but you don't go to the salon so that you can look nice for two hours. You go to the salon so that your hair looks nice for the next two months. And, and same with meditation. It's much more of a healing catharsis and a release so that you can be less stressed in the rest of your life than it is necessarily something to do in the right now. And where this has gotten confused is that most of the popular meditation styles, and I'm going to use meditation in air quotes right now, most of the most popular and most accessible quote unquote meditation techniques that are out there right now are actually forms of mindfulness. And a lot of people are using the terms mindfulness and meditation as synonyms. And I think that as these techniques are becoming more and more popular, we would do ourselves a favor by getting very clear on the language around them. And the word meditation has become a bit like the word food, right? Like you could eat a hamburger or you could eat a chia seed smoothie. Those are going to do very different things for your brain. Well, similarly, practicing mindfulness and practicing meditation are going to do different things for your brain. And, and the cool thing is the, the Ziva technique is a trifecta of mindfulness, meditation, and manifesting. So let me explain the difference between mindfulness and meditation. And I think that will help us to unravel yeah, why be great. they should be clearing their minds. So mindfulness, I would define as the art of bringing your awareness into the present moment. Beautiful, right? The art of bringing your awareness into the present moment. And all of us need this because a lot of us have become bulimic of the brain. We're constantly ingesting information on our phones. We're constantly reviewing the past, rehearsing the future. This is where depression and anxiety live. And so just to have tools to get you into the body, into the right now, 
very powerful. And this is what most of the meditation apps are. You know, the Headspace, the, um, you know, all of them, the drop-in meditation studios, the guided visualizations on YouTube. Most of these are flavors of mindfulness and they are so beautiful and so useful. And I'm so thankful that they exist. But mindfulness is very good at changing your state in the right now meaning I had a stressful day at work. Let me listen to this 10 minute guided visualization, or let me do this five minute breath exercise and I'll feel better in the right now. Awesome. Now what meditation is doing, and I'll speak specifically about Ziva meditation is that we're giving the body deep healing rest. Like I said, rest that's deeper than sleep. And when you do that, you actually de-excite your nervous system. You, you decrease your metabolic rate, your breathing rate, and your body temperature. And when you do that, when you give your body the rest that it needs, it knows how to heal itself. And one of the things that the body heals itself is stress. But what's interesting is that you're not just letting go of the stress from today. You're actually getting rid of all of the stress from your past, And that takes time. That's a process. But the reality is that every single time you've ever launched into fight or flight, it's left a little marker in your body. It's left a little open window in your brain machine. And so if you think about your brain actually as a computer, then every single time you've ever been stressed, every time you've ever launched into fight or flight, it's left an open window in your brain machine. And by the time the average adult American is 20 years old. We have about 10 million of those open windows on our brain machine. They're called premature cognitive commitments. Over time, that slows down your brain because it just like a computer, if you had 10 million open windows minimized on your computer and you went to type an email, your cursor would be 20 spaces behind. And that's what most of us are doing. We're performing not as quickly, as accurately, or as calmly as we could be because we're wasting so much of our mental energy on those old irrelevant windows. So basically what we do when we meditate is that we go and we give the body this deep rest and it starts to close down all those old irrelevant windows, which gives us more and more energy, more and more computing power for the present moment. So it's almost like that mindfulness, that present moment awareness becomes a byproduct of your everyday meditation. I love that analogy. I think that that is, especially in this day and age where people know that they have to close their apps on their iPhone or close their apps in different areas and just how much use affects the, the, the wear and tear of the effectiveness of our technology. I think that analogy really lands. And I just, I want to take a moment, Emily, and just acknowledge you for the, I think the beauty is because you are like an insider outsider, right? You like didn't grow up in the meditation space. You're not in the Buddhist tradition and grew up in that. You have such an effective way of knowing how to explain things that would resonate because I feel that you constantly put yourself in that space that you were in the beginning. Like how can this, how can I really understand this? And I think our audience, uh, the feedback that we got during the Broken Brain series is just, you have just a beautiful way of breaking things down. So I just want to take a moment and really acknowledge you for that. Mm, Thank you, Drew. I really appreciate that. And I, I feel like it is my 
my life's work on this planet is to make these tools really accessible and, and to take them truly mainstream. Cause at this point people know they should be meditating, but most people are not. Most people are not meditating together on Thanksgiving morning with their families. Most people are not waking up on Christmas morning and doing a quick meditation before the mimosas. So even though we know we should, we're not actually doing it. And so I really feel like my mission is to do whatever I can to, to get people to adopt and implement these tools. Cause talking about meditation, reading about meditation is not going to change your life. You have to actually do it. And in order for people to commit to it, they have to understand the return on investment because time is our most valuable resource. And so this is really, this is, this is what I love doing. So thank you for saying that. Yeah. So, you know, my, my business partner is Dr. Hyman. He's a very close friend of yours. And Dr. Hyman's done uh, multiple interviews talking about how you really help them step back into meditation, you know, and he has so many, you know, I've, had other business partners. I've launched a lot of different companies. I have a crazy schedule. I've never met anybody that has a crazier schedule than Dr. Hyman, right? And I think a little part of it that he is very open about is that he might have even been a little bit addicted to that schedule. Mm -hmm. And so even though he knew about meditation and other things, there's always a question of, are you practicing it, right? Are you practicing it? So how did you help him rediscover it? And were there any techniques of how of things that you share with him of how he can incorporate it and continue it you know into his life like how does one especially like if Dr. Hyman can integrate it into his life on a regular basis you know I think anybody can so what did you help him do and how did you help him make that switch in his life Great question. So Dr. Hyman and I had the pleasure of meeting in Greece. We were both speaking at a conference in Greece and I had heard of him. I knew of him, but we had never met before. And he actually came to two of my talks, which is kind of intimidating to be quite honest. And I was like a little nervous. It was him and Dave Asprey and JJ Virgin and all these like titans in the health industry coming to, to my little talk. And, and so I was a little nervous, but it, which was a good reminder of what that felt like to be nervous on stage. But I, I really believe in these tools. And, and so he came to my talks and then we did, uh, like there was five or six of us and I did, I led a guided, a guided session for a few of them. And then he came to me after Greece and said, you know, I really, I I've studied meditation for years. I was a yoga teacher. I studied, you know, different Eastern philosophies in college. Like I know this stuff, but I, I'm not practicing. And, and so I actually did a private course with him. I ran him through the full Ziva technique. And then he started back and he started doing 20 minutes twice a day, which as you just illustrated, is an extraordinarily valuable investment of his time because Mark goes, you know, from dawn until midnight, he's either on TV interviews or book interviews or writing books or traveling or running the Cleveland Clinic. And so for him to invest that time, I knew how valuable that was. So I really I knew that I had to um, illustrate to him how much time it was going to give him back. And this is, you know, his words. He says, now I don't have time not to meditate. He sees how much more efficient he is. He sees that his sleep is better. And sometimes he said, you know, even if I feel not so great, like a little rundown or I've been traveling too much, I'll meditate. And then I feel like I've just had a three hour nap. And that's really what meditation is doing is because it's giving you that deep rest. Even a 15 or 20 minute meditation feels like an hour or an hour and a half nap. And then 
then you don't have the sleep hangover on the other side. And because you don't have to actually lie down, it's something you can do at work. You could sneak away to a coffee shop. You can do it on your commute, on a plane ride with kids yelling in the next door, in your office, in a conference room, and no one's going to know that you're doing it. In the beginning, it might feel a little weird, but eventually you realize that no one really cares about you sitting quietly in a chair. It's really not that weird. And then when you feel this surge of productivity and energy on the other side, you start to realize, well, I can't go without meditation. And so I think it was, it was just a matter of reminding him of things that he already knew to be true, but then also teaching him the Ziva technique, which is the mindfulness that we use as almost like a warm up, as an appetizer into the main course of meditation, which people are given specific tools to induce that deep healing rest. And then the dessert of our technique is manifesting, which is really just taking a few minutes at the end of your practice to consciously create a life you love, to get specific about things that you want to bring into fruition in your life. And that could be imagining your ideal day or, you know, some bigger goal like writing a book or making the New York Times bestseller list or calling in your perfect partner. And so people really love that part of the story because it's so simple. But oftentimes we forget to take the time to do it. And it's basically giving you permission to daydream. It's giving you permission to place the order with the cosmic waitress at the cosmic restaurant, which a lot of us forget to do. We just sit down and say, I'm so hungry. Bring me some food. And we forget to ever specifically place the order. Mm, I love that. You know, you mentioned a word earlier that I thought was hilarious, but so true. Brain bulimia. You know, we're in this constant day and age where between notifications and other stuff, it's never been easier for people to feel pulled in so many different places. And I think that technology is only one part of that. Obviously, there's so many beautiful things about technology too. It's allowing these interviews to happen for us to keep in touch with people, community. But we have to work that much harder to really set the priorities in our life. How have you seen that meditation can help us with prioritization and getting clear with what we want to do and what truly matters for us. Mm. So what I recommend my students do is that they put their phone on airplane mode when they go to sleep at night and then they wake up, they freshen up and they do their morning meditation before coffee, before breakfast, before computer. And for those who are really brave, even before turning their phone, taking their phone off of airplane mode. And so the beautiful thing that this does is that you actually start your day for yourself. It's like you're tapping into the source of energy, the source of fulfillment, the source of your desires, the source of your creativity. And then you come out of your meditation and then you take your phone off of airplane mode. And you're so much better equipped to interact with your email inbox, social media, and all these things that really over time can contaminate our brain and our consciousness. And and the thing is, if you read the autobiographies of any of the world's high performers, I mean, now at this point, like 90% of them are starting their day with meditation, but even those who don't, what they all have in common is that they start their day for themselves. And if you start your day in your inbox, you're basically making yourself everyone else's servant. You know, what do you need? What's your deadline? What's your timeline? You know, how can I help you? And yes, let's be generous. Yes, let's help and collaborate with each other, but not before we filled up our own cup. 
right? You can't pour from an empty cup. And so if you're not, if you don't have some sort of a practice by which that you start your day filling yourself up, then everything feels uh, like a drain. Everything feels very expensive energetically. And what I like to joke with my students is that, you know, if you're, if you're addicted to martyrdom, don't take this class because you can only be a martyr if you're dealing with limited resources. And once you start meditating, your resources are no longer limited because every day, twice a day, you're tapping into the very source of energy. And, and one of the ways that that shows up is, is, is through technology. And so it's, it's, if, if meditation did nothing else for you other than give you 15 or 20 minutes at the beginning of your day that's for you, then that would be valuable. Even if none of the science, none of the things that I'm talking about was true, just you sitting with your eyes closed and not being on your phone for 15 minutes a day would actually help you. <laughs> but the reality is it's, meditation's not just a time to digest. It's not the same as a walk in the woods. It's not the same as taking three breaths. What I teach is actually going in and creating a systematic release of all of that lifetime of accumulated old stresses. But, but if it did nothing more for you than just have 15 minutes away from your phone, then even that would be good. <laughs> it's so true. I, I want to kind of, I think a lot of people are listening and they're relating to this and it kind of brings up these deeper things that, that I want to touch on with you and explore. You know, there's that old quote, I think it's uh, from A Course in Miracles of, you know, it's, it's not our darkness that scares us. It's our light and our ability to know, like our truest ability to shine in life is scary for people, right? Living the life that we deserve and not being driven by other people's priorities and fully valuing ourselves. Do you find that sometimes people avoid meditation because there's this insecurity that they're not enough and like stepping into it would, would actually help them release that? I think that you're, you're spot on. And I think that people are terrified of who they will be without their stress. I think for so many of us, stress has become such a huge part of our identity. It's become almost like, even though we don't like the friend, it's this friend that's always with us that we're spending so much time and energy managing either our anxiety or our depression or our worry or our health issues. And, and it costs us so much, but it's become familiar. And, and it's a little scary knowing who we will be if we let go of that, because just like anything, just like pain, the identity, the ego, disease, even everything wants to grow. And so once you start to introduce things that may change the ego, that may change the pain, that may destroy the stress, they fight back a little bit. And that's what resistance is. And, and a lot of my, because, you know, we really work with high performers at Ziva and that shows up as, you know, CEOs of fortune 500 companies, people like Dr. Hyman, and also, uh, you know, artists. I've taught Oscar, Grammy, Tony, and Emmy award winners. Uh, this year we got the EGOT of meditation students. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and I hear the same thing, but in two different ways, my CEO clients say to me, they, they say, Emily, I need my stress. That's the thing that gives me my competitive edge. And then for my artist clients, I hear, Emily, I need my stress. I need my angst. That's where my creativity comes from. And both things are patently false. Stress makes you stupid. Stress is not doing anyone any favors in the performance department. And the thing is, because most of us have spent so much of our lives being motivated by fear or competition or worry, well, I have to do this. I have to go to work because if I don't, I'll get fired. And if I get fired, I won't be able to pay my rent. And then I'll die alone on a bench with cats eating my face. It's like this story <laughs> of, you know, fear that's getting us to, to, 
maintain these lives that are suboptimal. And once you start to to give people tools that allow them to move towards the positive instead of away from the negative, life becomes so much easier and also so much more sustainable. You could work till 110 if your motivation for going to work every day is, I love what I do. I know it's helping people. I get energized from the work that I do. This becomes a reciprocal upward spiral of energetic exchange. And you can do this like well into your, you know, into old age. But if, if your job every day feels like a chore and something like you have to do and something that is costing you, then over time it's not sustainable. But what I find is, is not that people don't think that they deserve it. It's that people are afraid of who they'll be without their stress. And the answer is you'll be so much nicer, so much more kind, so much more compassionate, so much more creative. Your intuition gets so much louder and you start to find that you're in flow state so much more of the time that your big dreams, your big goals that you didn't even know how you were going to accomplish, they start to, it feels like almost fall in your lap but it's not an accident. It's a return on investment. It's a return on you wisely investing your time in eradicating that stress, which is slowing you down. Mm. We've all seen so many images of meditation and the person sitting cross-legged. I'll even share, you know, I grew up, um, I grew up in the Hindu tradition is the background that I grew up in. My family's from India and we come from this uh, tradition, the Brahmin tradition, and its meditation was a big component. But when I was taught meditation from a young age, which I am so thankful that I got exposure to it, it was very formal. You have to sit this way, you have to look this way, you have to do this, you have to say this. And as a young kid, I got exposure to it, which I appreciate, but I also really rebelled because I thought, what is the point of doing this? I don't actually feel, it, it didn't feel right to me. So a lot of people have seen that image. They see these monks, they see that. Walk us through your day and how meditation is integrated into your life. Like paint a picture for us. Like where are you sitting? What environment are you in? Are you with other people? Are you by yourself? Make it a little bit more real for our uh, the listeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so you're absolutely right. And anytime I write for a publication or a newspaper or something, they always post the picture with someone with the fancy fingers. You know, you see their, you know, the forefinger and the thumb together. And, and it's like that symbol has become so ubiquitous with meditation. And I'm really, and I always write the publication. I say, you can't, you can't use that photo. <laughs> That's not what I do. Like I'm on a mission to sort of make the meditation not so associated with mala beads and patchouli and fancy fingers and sitting on a cliff on a mountainside. And that's all beautiful. If that's your gig, if that's your jam, amazing. I have no, no qualms about it, but it just doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to have fancy fingers in order to meditate. And as a matter of fact, if you're trying to fit it into your workday and you feel like people at your job might feel a little uncomfortable if you were meditating in the middle of your, you know, open, office plan, then you just sitting with headphones in your ears and your eyes closed, no one's even going to know that you're meditating, you know, as long as you don't make a big spectacle out of it. So for me, I wake up in the morning, I freshen up. So I'll go to the bathroom, brush my teeth, uh, sometimes take a shower, but usually I just freshen up. And then I either go and sit on my bed with pillows behind me or on my couch. Sometimes my husband and I will meditate together. Oftentimes I do it on my own. And I just do that first meditation before coffee, breakfast, computer. And I'll sit sometimes with my legs extended, sometimes with my arms crossed. 
sometimes, you know, cross-legged, it's just whatever feels comfortable for me. But at Ziva, we're all about comfort. Comfort is key. We have our back supported and our head free. And so for people like, I can't sit still, I can't sit cross-legged, I can't sit on the floor, I don't want to hold those finger poses, you don't have to do any of that. It really, (laughs) what I teach, it looks a little bit more like a nap sitting up than it does some sort of monastic hard to do pretzely situation. So I'll do that morning meditation and then I'll have my smoothie and my supplements and I'll do sometimes do exercise. And then I have my day. And then on the days that I'm not teaching, even if I'm with my team, you know, there's about six of us that that work at Ziva and about somewhere around three or 4 PM, we usually start to see each other kind of getting a little foggy, a little faded, sometimes a little irritable, a little cranky. And we're like, you know what, why don't we take a break and it's time to meditate. And the cool thing is that obviously my whole team meditates. So we'll actually stop our whole staff meeting. We'll shut our computers. We turn our phones off, we dim the lights and then we'll meditate somewhere around three or four. And for us, we do 20 minutes, but what people learn through Ziva online, which is our online training, it's only 15 minutes twice a day. And I know that sounds like a lot of time, but people just think you went to the bathroom. People think you went away to the coffee shop. Like no one, no one really notices 15 minutes usually. Uh, And then you close your eyes and you do the practice. And then afterwards, it's like you have this wave of productivity and energy and creativity. And we all come back to the drawing board re-inspired and, and oftentimes we'll want to work a little bit longer or we'll come up with some insight that might save us days of spinning our wheels. And so for me, I do it twice a day and you could really do it anywhere. A lot of my um, students commute because I teach in New York. So a lot of people take the train or the subway and they just meditate right on the subway. And the cool, one cool thing that I don't talk about too much is how much this can help with jet lag because, you know, when you fly, it's very hard on the body, the dehydration, the EMF radiation, the changing time zones, moving through space very quickly. And so all of that costs the body a lot. And so I, I teach my students a, a technique for, for meditating on takeoff and landing that actually is, it's just filling up your tank of gas a little more frequently. And, and what most of my students report is like an 80 to 90% reduction in jet lag. And the cool thing is that no one on the plane even knows that you're doing it. I love it. People often are wondering, you know, they hear about these benefits. They've seen the difference that it's made for you, for Dr. Hyman, for other people. When people come to you and they ask you, Emily, how long before I see results? What do you share with them? Well, it's, it's different for everyone. Everyone's body is different, but most people start to notice some sort of shift in, even in the first few days. Uh, and this, you know, this obviously depends on what type of meditation you're doing. If you're taking three mindful breaths or listening to a five minute audio thing on YouTube, I don't think you're going to, I don't think that's going to change your life really quickly or really profoundly. It may, but I think that it's, you know, the technique matters and the investment matters. The time that you're doing it matters. I think the training matters. Uh, I mean, obviously I'm biased, but, but most of my students report seeing pretty significant changes, even within the first two to three days. And for a lot of people in the beginning, it's like, whoa, food tastes better. Sounds are more sharp. My sense of smell is stronger. I felt like my boss yelled at me and I didn't yell back. My sleep changed. And in the beginning, it's sort of like meditation gives you this little preview of coming attractions of what life can be like. And, and then 
for a lot of my students, there, there comes a period of what I call like emotional and physical detox. And a lot of people are not talking about this, but I think it's important for people to understand before they go into any real powerful meditation training is that, you know, your body is a perfect accountant. And so every single time you've ever been stressed, that stuff is stored in your body and it has to go somewhere. And so every Taco Bell, every Jack Daniels, every all nighter, every breakup, like all that stuff is in your cellular memory. And when we start meditating, that stuff comes up and out. And that can feel not so nice. People can get a little tired, a little irritable, a little sad, a little angry. Sometimes they'll even have physical symptoms of detox. And that can be very confusing if you're going into it, assuming that you should never cry again, or you should never feel angry again, because you're meditating, you're just going to be a little bliss bunny for the rest of your life. And really that's my job. My job is to help people through that. I've been through it myself. I've helped, you know, thousands of people through it. So it doesn't scare me anymore. And I have tools and techniques that I give people to, to really feel that and process it and, and to bless it even as it comes up and out. And then the beautiful thing is that once you've gotten rid of that stress, then you're setting yourself up for a lifetime of more energy, more clarity. So people start to notice things even in the beginning. I call it the Listerine effect where like, I know it's working because it's burning. <laughs> so even if they're not enjoying it for the first few days and weeks, it's like, you know, something is changing. I love that. The Listerine effect. Uh, Emily, you're going to be a mom soon. We're all very excited for you. Um, there's a lot of women that are listening right now that have young kids and they're thinking about meditation just sometimes even how do I get through the day? You know, uh, not just moms, but of course, dads too. people that have young kids. Any tips for parents who are looking to bring meditation into their life and are just having a hard time, you know, managing the day? Uh, anything that can make it a little bit more useful for them that you've seen in your experience to begin to incorporate it in and find that time? Yeah. So I'll start by saying we should probably do this interview again in seven weeks and I'll probably have a very different answer. <laughs> you know, once I have my own kid, uh, I might change everything I've ever said, <laughs> but I, but what I have seen, you know, and it's obviously I've taught thousands of people who have kids, but we go back to that concept of you can't pour from an empty cup. And if you think that you spending every single waking minute doting on or waiting on or caring for your kids, your partner, your job of other people, of all your responsibilities, but you never take time for yourself, you have to understand that that is not sustainable and that at some point there's, there's going to be an end date on that. And that's going to cost your body, your brain something. And so if it might seem so selfish, it might seem incomprehensible how you could ever find the time. But if you're not taking a moment to fill yourself up, then, then what do you have to give to your kids, to your partner, to your job? And so even though it feels selfish, I really encourage people to put themselves way up the priority list. And, and I teach, you know, my moms, my dads, my new parents, I say, I want you to understand what the quote unquote rules are. You know, I want you to understand what's the ideal day in the, in the life of a meditator. And now it's going to be your job to adapt. 
For, so for new parents, the rule is catch as catch can. If you need to do it while you're nursing, great. If you need to meditate for 10 minutes instead of 15, awesome. I usually say don't meditate after eating, but if you just ate and your baby takes a nap, who cares? Meditate. <laughs> you know, usually I say don't meditate right before sleep, but if that's your only time to do it because you have a newborn, who cares? So it's like you, you basically, you have to adopt a new theme song as a new parent, which is don't let perfect be the enemy of good. And you just get it in whenever you can. And you trust that what I recommend is, especially for pregnant women, I love teaching pregnant women to meditate. And I can definitely speak firsthand from this. I'm, I'm 34 weeks pregnant now. And I've had what seems to be like the easiest pregnancy in history. I've, I haven't been nauseous. I haven't been tired. My sleep is fine. I'm not getting up at night to pee. So my sleep is not interrupted. I feel like my mental acuity is still really strong. And this is not the report that I hear from most people. Like I love being pregnant. And so, and I really think that meditation has played a huge part in that. So what I recommend for new parents is that they actually develop a meditation practice before they become parents, if at all possible. And then they have some reserve in the bank account. And, and then, you know, obviously that newborn chapter is a very specific chapter where, where your number one priority is keeping this new human alive. And from what I hear, that's really a 24 hour a day job. So if for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, you know, you're not having a perfect practice, it's like, who cares? That's the time to withdraw some of your energy from your, from your bank account. But then as the kid becomes more and more self-sufficient, you want to start to reprioritize yourself. And I think the big thing and what a lot of my students have said is ask for help. The advice they've been giving me is just make sure you ask for help. If it's a neighbor or a babysitter or you and your partner taking terms, turns or a family member, you know, make sure that you do have some support in place because no, none of us can be on call 24 hours a day. Uh, we have to take some time to rest and rejuvenate. And then the cool thing is that you, your, your kids feel it. The happier you are, the more energy you have. They are so energetically sensitive, those little beings. And, and that's really all they want is they want to feel safe. They want to feel secure. They want to feel loved. And it's so much easier for you to provide that if you yourself are, are rested and feel happy and are not stressed. What about teaching kids meditation? When is too, is there too young of an age to teach kids meditation? What's a way to bring it into their, into their life? So what we do at Ziva is we have a kids course and we offer that ages six through 11. And that's something that we do as a gift to our graduates. And it's a really adorable. The course fee is that kids bring a, a fruit and a flower and then a drawing of what meditation means to them. We just did one this past weekend and it was so adorable. And then the kids talk me through their drawing and, and what they think about meditation. And it only takes me about an hour and a half or two hours to teach kids because it's so much easier for them than it is for adults. Um, but I, I love teaching kids. Well, that's not true. It's hard teaching kids. I think it's very hard work <laughs> and I don't know that I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't say it's my forte, uh, but I do it and it's adorable. And I, every time I do it, I have such respect for moms and for teachers and for dads. It's just, uh, you know, they, they have so much energy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I would say somewhere around like six to 11 is a great time to introduce it to kids. Uh, five is kind of borderline that depends on the kid. And then usually my five-year-olds that come in, they have to come in again around seven or eight to refresh, you know, once their memories are working in a different way. And unfortunately, I don't have a real solution for teens. Uh, like we don't have like a teen specific class yet at Ziva, but I think that there's a real need for it. And 
uh, if that's something that anyone is into or someone who specializes in working with teens and anxiety, which we know is a huge problem right now, like teen anxiety is higher than it's ever been. And I, and I think certainly with all these school shootings, that's not helping the problem. And so if this is something that someone is, uh, a specialist in, I'd love to, I'd love to brainstorm about offerings that we could do to, to help. Cause I think there's a real need for it in the world. I love that. And we'll put your information up there where people can reach out to you. Uh, I want to conclude and go back to this topic of, um, of brain health. You know, we, for such a long time, meditation has this association with either religion or spirituality. And now really the science is catching up and proving and the, uh, programs like Ziva and, and teachers like yourself are out there that are really making this accessible. What would you say is like some of the latest science and research that just blows your mind in terms of the effectiveness on meditation and, and brain health? Have you come across anything uh, recently that would really help people understand that meditation and brain health are one and the same? Yes, there are three studies. And I'll, I'll, sh- I'll quickly share them. One is anatomical in that meditation is it strengthens and thickens something called the corpus callosum, which is the bridge between the right and left hemispheres of the brain. And if you actually look at a human brain, it splits down the middle 50-50. It's almost two separate organs. And the only thing that connects those two hemispheres is this little tiny white strip called the corpus callosum. And what we know is that meditators have thicker corpus callosums than non-meditators. And now we even know that 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 it is the meditation that is causing that thickening. Because before we didn't know if it was causal or correlated, but the longer you meditate, the thicker your corpus callosum becomes, which I think is amazing. But people are like, why would I want a fat corpus callosum? Well, everyone should, because it's quite literally the bridge between your critical mind and your creative mind. Mm. It is the thing that allows you to come up with all those witty comebacks in the middle of a fight with your partner, (laughs) or the thing that allows you to come up with a great idea when your boss is freaking out. And so we we all want to have that right bridge creativity and that left brain like present moment awareness available to us all the time. So the fact that sitting quietly in a chair could actually change the anatomy of your brain, I think is fascinating and mind blowing. The other thing is that meditation can reverse your body age by, by somewhere around eight years. Some studies are saying 15, but, but the majority of them are saying eight. And when I first heard this, I was like, come on, that, that it's not magic. It's not a fountain of youth. It's not, it's not a magic pill and it's not. But, but if we go back to this idea that stress ages the body expeditiously, then we see it plain as day. I mean, look at any president the day they take office and that same president four years later, right? That stress is aging them so quickly. So if we go in and and use a tool that's going to reduce the stress every day, then that stands to reason that you may in fact age uh, less quickly. Mm. So I think that's pretty fascinating. And then, oh, and then the other one, I went to a neuroscience conference two years ago where they revealed this study that mindfulness, so this is the first component of the Ziva technique, uh, which is the art of bringing your awareness into the present moment. Mindfulness alone can reduce your pain receptivity by 44%, which is double morphine. Wow. And when I heard that, I was like, no, come on. Like, and I just thought I wasn't smart enough to understand the study because it was like actual neuroscientists in the room. And I'm like a Broadway actress pretending to be (laughs) smart about neuroscience. And, but then three weeks later, they released the study in Time Magazine and they had sort of dumbed it down for the rest of us. And I was like, no, that's what this study is saying. 
And, and so the fact that we can actually use our minds to help us with pain, I think is so revelatory, especially in an age where we have an opioid epidemic in our country. And when we have 44% of the American adult female population is on anti-anxiety or antidepressants, I think that to really start to hone and utilize the full capacity of these mental techniques is the thing that's going to get us out of this opioid crisis. It's really, truly the future of medicine is bringing all these components, especially meditation. I mean, it, we see it so firsthand. We can be doing everything right in our life, but if you get into a fight with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your husband or your partner or something's stressing you out that you're worried about, if it doesn't matter if you've just even had a massage, your body's ability to control its emotions and your brain's ability to control those emotions will always trump everything else out there. So having a beautiful relationship with that and giving some space from all the stimulation that's there, it's like, why would anybody not want to do that? <laughs> I do not know. <laughs> <laughs> Emily, thank you so much for helping us understand the power of meditation and sharing your story and your journey with us. For our listeners, of course, many of them saw you in the docuseries, uh, Broken Brain. Where can they find out more about you? And if they want to learn meditation, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the courses that uh, Ziva offers? Yes. Yeah, so people can find us at zivameditation.com and that's Z-I-V-A. It's a Sanskrit word that means bliss. So zivameditation.com and people can learn all about our in-person training in New York and our online training. And probably what's going to be most accessible to folks is, is, a, is a course called Ziva Online, which I'm really proud of because it takes these tools and makes them accessible to people, even if they don't have a teacher in their hometown. And so Ziva Online is, it's about 25 minutes a day for 15 days. And you can choose your own start date. You can go at your own time. You can work it into your busy schedule. But ideally it's 25 minutes a day for 15 consecutive days. And it really is a matriculation. So each day's course builds upon the previous day so that by the time you graduate, you have a powerful practice of mindfulness, meditation, and manifesting to do on your own for life. So the first three days, people learn mindfulness. So we do breathing techniques. We do some guided visualization. Um, and we and then days four through 12, people are learning meditation. And that's what I taught Dr. Hyman. People are actually given something called a mantra, which is the thing that induces that deep healing rest. I talk about that physical and emotional release that can happen for folks. And we build up bit by bit. We go from five minutes and we build our way to 15 minutes twice a day. And then days 13 through 15, people are learning the manifesting techniques, the ways to, the, and they really, they're, they're not tricks, but there are specific techniques that help uh, you to get super specific about what your big dreams are and how to really make them your everyday reality. And then once you graduate, you have the tools to take with you. You're not dependent on me. You don't need Wi-Fi or finger symbols or incense or, you know, mala beads. You can just do it anywhere on a plane, on a train, on a bus with your kids in the next room while you're nursing. And, and so it's, it's super practical and super portable. And that's just uh, zivameditation.com. People can learn all about that course. Great. And you'll be able to find the links in the show notes. Emily, thank you again. This was a true pleasure. You're awesome. It's really an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely.